Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello. As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with the greatest gift imaginable free beer. Thanks to our friends at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to get eight exclusive craft beers from around the world for free. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. I'm sure you'll have figured it out, but it's best to be clear. And cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that, political party listeners get two extra free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries the earth has to offer. And they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. Previous themes have included Germany, Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom, there's no lock-in and you can leave at any time. Your first box will be sent to you the very next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme of the box and the individual beers. Plus, you also receive a tasty snack just to top it all off. The box I got has been a godsend to me these last couple of weeks. Some of the beers are incredible. They sent me one called the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Porter, which was unlike anything I'd ever tasted, and a Mango IPA. I mean, I've never tried, I've never tried beer like it. Um, and it, it, you can tailor it to your taste, basically. If you don't like dark beers, you choose the light plan. And obviously, if you like light beers, you choose the light one. It's so easy, even I figured it out. Just go to www.beer52.com party to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, political party customers get an extra two unmissable beers for free. That's beer52.com party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party, the first episode that I've had to record from home as a result of these new measures. Um, I've managed to download some technology and I can interview people remotely. So hopefully the um, sound quality and everything is good enough, but obviously for the time being, uh, this is the way um, I'm going to have to run these interviews. Uh, today's guest is Ben Page, the chief exec of Ipsos Mori, the market research company. And this is absolutely fascinating um, as an insight into... Um, a bit of global public opinion, but predominantly UK public opinion around the government's handling of the crisis, the measures the public would like to see, any variations in opinion and what causes those, um, changes in opinion, attitudes towards things like stockpiling and panic buying. It is absolutely brilliant. And he is, as many of you will know, um, one of the world's leading uh, market researchers and gives us just the benefit of his amazing insight in this interview so um, I hope you're well keep washing your hands for the latest advice go to gov.uk that's gov.uk slash coronavirus uh, but for now enjoy uh, the fantastic insights of Ben Page 
Delighted to be joined by Ben Page from Ipsos Mori. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, you've been doing some fascinating research around public attitudes uh, around the coronavirus. Can you tell us what is what is British public opinion like at the moment in terms of the government's handling of the crisis? We've got about half the public who say they're happy with the way uh, the government is dealing with the crisis. Now, that might not sound very much, but actually, of course, given that people are generally negative about anything the government does, quite frankly, uh, having, having around 50% positive isn't bad. Uh, at the same, and at the same time, we've also seen a very sharp rise in satisfaction with the government, which is something that we normally see at times of crisis. So uh, Boris Johnson started off with relatively low, by historic standards, uh, satisfaction ratings for his government when he came into power. Uh, with a sort of nadir around September time. Yeah. But now, since the crisis has begun, it's shot up, and it's now about as high as it was for Mrs Thatcher when she was handling, of course, the Falklands War. And we're, his ratings are now similar to sort of early Tony Blair in terms of how happy people are with the government. And I think it's just a sign that at times of crisis, you know, we know that people look for leadership, they look for authority to do something. And it's the same thing that we've seen with Emmanuel Macron, we've seen with Conte in Italy, and indeed with Angela Merkel, all of their ratings have shot up because at times of crisis, people want somebody to do something. They look, they look to the government for leadership. But the government still has to do something, does it, in order to get some form of a positive approval rating? Or, or does that just naturally happen? Do people just respond well to authority at a time like this? I think there's a, well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, but clearly the government is doing something because you and I are both locked in our houses virtually. Uh, so, uh, you know, people have experienced pretty dramatic changes in their lives in the last two weeks. So they can see that something is happening. And of course, we've also had the announcements of, uh, you know, tens of hundreds of billions of, of spending just to, to sort of hold up wages, et cetera, and incomes. So, um, yes, but it's, so, there, so, there, so there is that. Having said that, before the lockdown, um, as many as 40% of people said the government wasn't doing enough. And, um, you know, obviously Britain was late to lockdown, uh, was, you know, was previously following a different policy. And, uh, you know, it's clearly that public, public opinion was saying they had to do something. They've now done it. And in one sense, they've reaped the benefit. In terms of how it plays out, of course, given that we're at least three weeks away from the peak of the disease, and indeed, sadly, the, probably the number of daily deaths, uh, we don't, you know, we don't know how the government, you know, whether this will be sustained, if, if people will get, you know, there will be a massive backlash. But generally, and particularly in a vacuum with, um, you know, a very weak opposition, uh, and again, it will be different perhaps when there's a new leader of the opposition, the government, you know, it's government that will tend to see better ratings at times like this. We saw it after 9-11 as well, for example. But people, it, it's not just that uh, government's uh, approval ratings naturally uh, rise at times like this. The government has to be doing things that the public broadly agree with. Yes, and the public, the public agree with quarantining um, people, even cities. Uh, around three quarters want to quarantine the entire country and stop all flights in and out, you know, etc. So the public's pretty supportive of quite dramatic restrictions. And, you know, despite the fact that, you know, people's individual freedom of movement is now very, very limited, um, you know, if anything, I suspect that we'll see even more support um, in, in the weeks to come. And do you get a sense of how long people would hold that opinion for? Because we're talking about potentially the government having, or has already passed legislation to have quite sweeping, potentially authoritarian and draconian powers. People might like the idea of those powers for a 
period of time. But do you get any sense that people say, well, I will feel like this for, say, three weeks or six months? Um, well, we do have uh, quite a lot of people who think that it's all going to be over by June. So around four in 10, I think, when I last looked. Yeah, so they think we're going to be uh, like President Trump, who's all equally optimistic. We're all going to be back to our daily business in June. Now, uh, I, the evidence on that, of course, is, is, pretty, uh, is pretty mixed. And of course, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the challenges and one of the things we just don't know is how many of the changes, or indeed the changes that have been made in societies like China, end up being permanent. I'm always reminded of, uh, you know, income tax was brought in as a temporary wartime measure during the Napoleonic <laughs> Wars, and uh, I think it's still here. And, you know, closing times for pubs were put in action in World War I and seemed to be still going strong, certainly when I was growing up in the 1980s. So, um, yes, we don't know. But I think, I, I think one thing that um, we, we should look for in public opinion, and in a sense you could see it, even before the cri this, this particular crisis began, was in some senses a, a return for a desire for an activist and protectionist government. Um, one of the questions we've been tracking since the last century is whether people want in crude terms, the wording's a bit more complicated, but do you want to be a bit more like Denmark or a bit more like America? And Britain traditionally had been sort of divided over which of those alternatives. We were sort of transatlantic. But since, the, uh, since austerity and the crash, uh, by 2019, 57% of us wanted a government that put most emphasis on sort of social and economic equality and less on, you know, individual freedom and um, being, everybody being able to do exactly what they like sort of thing. So I think, you know, you've seen that sort of rowback from the Blair-Clinton era of just, you know, globalization, free trade, enable citizens to compete. And then, you know, and then and provide a safety net and that's enough to, to, what, to citizens wanting governments to stop immigrants coming here, to protect them against cheap Chinese steel, to erect borders. And that's even before the virus. So I, I think we may see this sort of a willingness to accept quite heavy state intervention in our lives in response to this in the same way that we did in the aftermath and enduring and indeed after World War Two. Do you get a sense... Um of the differences in opinion across things like age and gender, class, race, are older people more optimistic about um, the government's handling of the crisis? Are young people more pessimistic? Yeah. So, yes, yeah. so there is, I mean, some of the patterns that any observer of British politics in the last year or two, or last five, five or six years um, will have noticed in politics are still there. The young are more negative about the handling of the crisis than the old. Obviously, there's a difference by um, voter behaviour. If, if, if you're a Conservative, you know, Boris Johnson can do no wrong. If you're Labour, you're rather more critical. I think one of the, the, one of the things that is clear is that in terms of um, making ends meet and also dealing with your kids while, they're, while the schools are closed, uh, what we can see is that although everybody's, you know, affected and everybody's worried about being able to get enough find things in the shops, people, you know, worried about whether they're going to be able to stay positive during this period of lockdown. It is definitely the under 34s in particular who are, you know, feeling, feeling it's just really, really difficult. And of course, if we're looking at the people who've been laid off in the hospitality and retail sectors uh, in the last week, with those, you know, nearly, I think, hundreds of thousands of people trying to now claim universal credit in one week, absolutely unprecedented. A lot of them are going to be under, you know, in, under 34. So that's what our polling is showing at the moment. If you're on a pension and you were staying at home, you were probably staying at home quite a lot of time before the crisis. 
What about ge- geographically? Are people in the north any more or less sceptical about the government's handling than people in, say, Scotland, Wales or the east of England? There's not, there isn't that much difference. I think London is a bit more negative than everywhere else. But again, that's partly the age profile. And of course, London is a Labour city. Um, so it's not, I don't, I don't think I've got enough yet to come up with a sort of definitive uh, argument about, how, about breaking it down at regional level yet, to be honest, Matt. But certainly London is a bit more negative. And what about gender? Um, again, uh, there's not, not massive differences, actually. I mean, young men are the most, uh, are the most sort of difficult in terms of... Uh, <laughs> in so many ways. In, in so many ways. So young, younger, younger men are, are more... Younger men and work, younger working class men are more, more rebellious, shall we say. I mean, Leave voters. Uh, we did look at some of this by Leave and Remain voting behaviour. and We found that... Um, Whereas 59% of people who said they voted Remain said they were now self-isolating at home, the figure for Leave voters was only, who included a lot of older people, was only 47%. So there is, uh, there are, you know, there are some differences in terms of how people react. And yes, young men are sort of kicking against the, the authority, perhaps we might expect them to, in terms of what they're being asked to do. Do you think people have been clear about what's been asked of them? Has that come through in the polling? I think they are now, but before, certainly, I think some of the, you know, some of the sort of mixed messages like, you know, don't go and see your mum, but I'm going to see my mum or, you know, don't go to the pub and then, you know, and then, but you can if you need, you know, sort of don't go, we wouldn't advise going to restaurants, but I think this is the point, you know, don't go to the pub, but you can pop in for a quick half if you're, if you're, if you're desperate, you know, as we know, anybody who looks at sort of political communications or indeed communications of any type, nuance really doesn't work in situations like this. And so I think until... Until the last week, the public were um, sort of getting mixed messages and therefore reacting in, you know, in ways that clearly led ultimately to the need to have some pretty strict rules and indeed just literally close down whole, whole waves of institutions. Um, so, yeah, there, were, there was, I think the public were happy to hear selective things. I mean, there's still, you know, there is still some sort of mixed, uh, there's still people who think it's being exaggerated by the media in Britain. Uh, so, um, so that's sort of quite, yeah. How much of this is, I, I mean, I'm not sure how uniquely British this is, although it's often framed as yeah. kind of British yeah. rebelliousness. A desire for a loophole. So many people will watch a broadcast that when I watch, I think, well, that's absolutely clear. I can't leave the house. I've spoken to other friends of mine who think, well, it wasn't that clear. Maybe I can still either go to the pub or see a mate or whatever. Is that a desire sort of inbuilt human desire to find an excuse somehow yeah we want to do the, we want to do the things that um we want to do don't we and we'll we'll find ways to justify them and it's a bit like you know we know smoking is bad for us we know eating too much fatty food and drinking too much is bad for us and yet we find we find plenty of momentary reasons to um ignore the advice when we when, we, when it suits us and it's the, it's the same in a sense with this but we do we do have uh 70% who say there should be heavy fines for people who break quarantine and self-isolation uh, rules. Um, and potentially that's, um, you know, that's actually, although that's a lot lower than in Italy or in China, uh, which is interesting, but that, you know, similar to America. Uh, and of course, the slight risk is we think these are fines for other people who break the rules. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Do you have any um, <laughs> sense of what people understand? Do people know what self-isolation means and what shielding means? Are people understanding the specific terms that the government and the chief medical officer and others are, are using? 
I think broadly, yes. I mean, people people have got the two meter rule. Um, we've got you know the proportion of people who say they're avoiding close contact with others has gone up from thirty three percent to sixty seven percent in the last week. Uh, so it's pretty um, you know that's 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 quite marked. And you know, planning not to planning not to go to things. You know, uh, we've got you know it was nineteen percent in in the second week of March. By the third week of March, it was fifty one percent. Sort of got the message. So I, th I think people, um, you know, people have sort of broadly broadly got it. There will always be some people who think, oh well, you know, I'm you know, and we will see them. They will be shamed and identified in social media, etc. But, uh, you know, there it is. Yeah, we, but, and there are still, as I say, 38% who think things will be back to normal by June, um, including 50%. Interestingly, in Italy, it's 56%. Uh, so um, that's, you know, amazing. Is that just an evolutionary coping mechanism to, to be able to withstand short, sharp periods of um, sacrifice, knowing that, well, as long as this is, doesn't last too long, I, yeah. can, I can suffer it? I think that's a good point, Matt. And of course, you'll remember, you know, in the First World War, it will all be over by Christmas. And I think they've a similar sort of thing said at the beginning of the Second World War. So, I mean, hopefully this isn't the thing that goes on for years and years. But yes, people, people just tend, it takes time for people to accept the sort, of, the sort of change curve that we all go on as we get used to some new and potentially unpleasant situation. And uh, we'll, you know, it's dropped, it's dropped about 11 points in the last week. Unfortunately, I think it will be back to normal by June and potentially by by early April, um, that will be lower still. So, you know, people will gradually accept what is what is going on. The severity of it is only really just hitting home, I think, for people. It's happened so quickly, almost simultaneously, incrementally, but very quickly as well. And we're now in this changed world where some of us can't leave the house for 12 weeks. And um, obviously people yeah. now know loved ones and, and close family, friends and relatives who are becoming severely ill. How yeah. stressful are people finding it? Or at the moment, do you think on the whole people are, are able to cope? Um, well, I think we'll see, won't we, when we hear the ultimate data on, um, you know, things like domestic violence and, and suicide. There was a, a figure reported in the media today that in France, uh, the, the Parisian police are reporting a 56% increase in domestic violence, which is... Um, I think, you know, a simple step. So overall, people say, you know, 62% say they're going to find it, they're finding it harder to be positive about the future, which is what we've been measuring. So we'll, um, you know, we'll see how that sort of holds uh, together. But um, no, the country, you know, people, people are turn out ultimately to be pretty adaptable, of course, as the data, the data shows. And, you know, most people are getting enough to eat. Um, the job, the bigger concern actually really is is financial now with, with um, you know, the vast majority of people expecting to be worse off as a result of the, um, uh, the virus, uh, which is pretty dramatic, you know. I mean, we've got, um, uh, what is it now, 69% of people in Britain who expect um, to be poorer as a result, and that they may well be right. And And how much... Have the announcements that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have announced in the last fortnight, uh, primarily for people who pay through PAYE and then for the self-employed, and I know the self-employed announcement was only a day or two ago, but how 
um, how soothing have those uh, announcements been? Oh yeah, no, they're extreme overall. Although there are obviously you know problems about people who get missed out. Overall, over eighty percent of the public think they're a good thing and are supportive of them doing that. So you know, huge, huge support for. I mean, it, it is it is again incredible, isn't it? These are things that if we were, you know um, uh, Corbyn and McDonald had been told was going to be in place by March, they'd have assumed that they had won the general election hands down. Or <laughs> I um, still think they, they think they might have done actually. Well, of course, yes. No, I know that's right. They're huge. They're huge impact, despite um, Jeremy Corbyn leaving office with amazingly low ratings. But uh, they were right all along. But then they often are right. Um, but no, so I think the, pub, the public will accept, this is, this is the point, the public is accepting the government doing all sorts of extraordinary things, exactly what the long-term implications are of massive uh, increases in, 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 you know, in national debt uh, around the world, and you know, countries less able to cope with it than Britain, like Italy, and what that means for the, for the euro and, and relations with Germany. You know, at the moment, Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands, of course, are refusing to sort of bail out um, uh, you know the, the euro in the way that the uh, French and Italians would now like them to. So these these are all these sort of tensions that we're going to see. I mean, I, it's, it is uncharted territory, but I think overall people turn out to be fairly, um, you know, more more sort of robust. We've we've been through, you know, we've been through other things similar to this in a way, not in, not in, not in exactly this way, but you know, the financial crisis, etc. So we will we will muddle through. But yeah, in terms of the impacts. There is support for what the government's doing, but in terms of impacts, in terms, you know, we will need to wait for the evidence on things like suicide rates, etc., which did go up after, of course, the crash of 2008, um, and indeed in, in, in the period after, period afterwards. And so, given that the size of the financial impact, because I think although there are some immediate things, there are all sorts of other implications of, uh, you know, there's a lot of corporate debt around that now has to be refinanced, but even with incredibly low interest rates not all banks are going to want to lend lots of money to, to businesses that may or may not be able to rebuild. And um, so how it, how it all, un, you know, comes, how it all sort of unwraps from here uh, is, you know, it's because it almost certainly isn't just going to be a short, sharp shot for three months uh, is, is really difficult to predict. Just on Jeremy Corbyn, obviously people have their perceptions about how well or not the government has been handling the crisis. Do you know how they feel about other political actors, about the opposition, or about the Scottish government? Uh, we've looked, we have looked at that. Let me try and find it for you. Sorry, because I haven't. Uh, um, so we'll, you'll have. Sorry, to sorry. I realise I'm, I'm, I'm leaping all over the place. No, it's all right. It's okay. Um, let me just get some data. Actually, this is the benefit of being able to interview people in their home because you can get this stuff up in front of you. You can, no, absolutely. Uh, hang on, so let me just find the I should try and ask one. you questions on a wild, wild variety of different topics and see if well, you can, can find can, them on your laptop. you can, in theory, I might be able to, um, I might be able to find <laughs> some data for you. What do Japanese farmers think about these Swedish uh, plants? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, hang on, okay, here's the data. Let's have a look. We do have data on Japanese people, which is always fun. Oh, well, um, great. We um, so here we go. Uh, let's have a look. So, uh, yeah. So currently, um, do you have a favourable, unfavourable opinion of Boris Johnson? Thirty-four uh, percent. The Conservative Party thirty-two. The Labour Party twenty-six. And Jeremy Corbyn seventeen percent, which is about uh, the lowest we've seen for um, some 
time. Low even by Corbyn's relative standards. Um, it's about no. It's about he's sort of bumping along the bottom, frankly, where is where Jeremy Corbyn is. He's not. He hasn't sort of gone to some new, new low. He's. I mean, remember in our most recent voting intention poll, we've still got thirty percent saying voting Labour, and all over Conservatives are up to fifty-two. So, I mean, I think you know, as you know, Matt, you could put a parrot on a stick of the right of the appropriate colour, and it would almost certainly get um, as long as it was blue or red. Uh, you know, up around three in ten of the electorate voting for it, as yeah. you know, as the, who were diehard Conservative or Labour voters, and whoever you know, even even if Rebecca Long Bailey wins the leadership of the Labour Party, which I think is unlikely, but if she were to, you know, Labour's share of the vote, I don't think would go down very much, to be quite honest. But is that just because it has gone so low? It, it literally yes, exactly. can't go anywhere. It's, 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 bed, it's bedrock. I mean, because it's at the same level it was roughly in in 1983, um, you know, and, the, and that is about the bedrock of British politics. I thought in, 20, in the 2017 election that Boris Johnson, that Jeremy Corbyn was going to break the golden rule, that it's virtually impossible to get less than 29% of the vote because he, you know, he started the campaign at around that level. Um, and I thought, and I, I was thinking it was going to be like the 1983 campaign and it would just go backwards. And of course, he actually... He did rather better, you know, obviously, he, and surprised us all. So there you go. But no, nobody, so, so far, no, nobody has managed to break the golden rule, however crazy they may seem or useless they are as leaders. It's around, roughly around three in ten people, either Labour or Conservative, will elect virtually anybody, will vote for anybody as leader of their, of their party. And is there any polling around um, which Labour potentially, potential leaders, so uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Lisa Nandy or, or Keir Starmer, the public would prefer to have in post during this specific crisis? Well, I think Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer is the most popular and also the most recognised. Among those who've heard of them, uh, and obviously not everybody has been paying close attention to the Labour leadership crisis, le- crisis, sorry, the Labour leadership contest. I think that was uh, the right word. Know, well, potentially. Uh, Lisa Nandy actually does quite well among those who've heard of her, but her problem relative to Keir Starmer is that not enough people have heard about her. So, you know, she's been the sort of positive surprise in one way of the campaign, I would say, um, and, you know, uh, in, uh, in terms of public perception. But um, overall, Keir Starmer, you know, does do much better than Jeremy Corbyn in terms of public ratings, and it will be you know, assuming he wins, I, you know. Uh, he's got some, you know, there is some, he has, he has a honeymoon, he has a chance to try and, uh, I mean, draw some of the oxygen out away from Boris Johnson. Although I think during the, during the crisis, of course, that, you know, the opposition can't really be seen to be too aggressive in attacking the government at a time when, you know, everybody wants to pull together, etc. Uh, and so it'll probably only be afterwards that uh, he, he's able to actually sort of start ha- really having a go, I suppose, to say. Uh, just on holding the government to account, um, there's been, yeah. you, you can see it not just in, in social media, but in conversation with friends and periodically on the news, some scepticism yeah. about the government strategy and maybe concern about phrases like herd immunity and this perception that perhaps the Tory party will always have, that perhaps it wasn't immediately animated enough about protecting vulnerable people. Has that pulled through in any of the polling? Um, not, not really. I mean, we, as I say, before the uh, before the lockdown began, there was, despite having fifty percent happy, there were forty two percent were saying um, before the lockdown that the measures the government had taken were about right, but fifty percent were saying the measures had not gone far enough. 
And so, you know, it's, I don't think they're sitting there waiting for the latest Ipsos Mori poll, but it is interesting that after we did that, uh, you know, they've now gone to, to, to something that's much more similar to our European neighbours. And, uh, you know, so there was, there was some anxiety about what they were doing. I think the sort of, un, you know, the, the arguments around herd immunity and all of this sort of more detailed stuff um, and whether it's better to, you know, to not overwhelm the, the whole idea of herd immunity about, you know, trying not to overwhelm the NHS all at once, etc. And of course, that, the theory turned out to be wrong. That really, again, the public isn't paying that much attention. I mean, you've got to, you've got to remember that on something like climate change, that you and I, I don't know you're, if you're a sort of climate change denier, no, most not. sort of, most, most sort of, you know, academic types or, or you know, political, you know, pollsters, etc., will probably tend to go along with the 96% of scientists who say that, uh, you know, climate change is human, is human made and is definitely happening. But in contrast, when you ask the public, do you think the scientists know what they're talking about on climate change? You know, 47% of the public say that, you know, even scientists don't know what they're talking about on climate change. And I think on something as novel as, as the coronavirus, you will have a similar, I haven't actually asked the question in exactly the same way, but I think you would get a similar level of the public saying, actually, the scientists don't really know, you know, exactly how, how it works, etc., or how many people are going to get it. And of course, they may be right. And are people reassured by figures like um, Jenny Harries and Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Vallance? Uh, have wheeling those experts out had any benefit? Well, I think it's certainly being a politician uh, who, as you know, is the least trusted profession in Britain. It's always good to find the two most trusted professions in Britain, scientists and doctors, and keep them very close to you, particularly in a medical crisis like this from a medical emergency. So um, there is that. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, in terms of sort of the detail and the numbers that are cited, you know, the public really, when you start talking about will it be, you know, 20,000 people dying, 50,000 people dying, these are just, just huge numbers. And it, it sort of, you know, it comes down to, I think until we see, uh, you know, literally convoys of, of military vehicles taking away coffins as they have in Italy or something, you won't, you know, it's hard for people to sort of really come to grips with what we're talking about. But having said that, I mean, in Italy, where they are, where that is literally happening, of course, support for the government has gone up. And again, some of the, you know, you could argue that the Italian government didn't move quickly enough. So I think this general trend that we talked about at the beginning, where the public tends to support the government of the day during a time of national emergency or a national crisis, probably is more important than sort of, whether or not they, you know, they got the strategy right in the early days. You're going to, you know, we're now seeing things like this huge hospital being created in London and other ones being planned in Birmingham and, uh, you know, in the Northwest. And this sort of massive intervention, clearing the streets, closing tube stations, shutting all the shops, people can see the government is now doing something very, very serious. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. What about within the nations of the UK? Um, obviously, health is fully devolved. Do people in Scotland make any distinction between the way the UK government is handling it compared to, say, the Scottish government, or is just the government seen as one entity in, in this uh, I regard? mean, generally, the Scottish... Yeah, generally, the Scottish government actually has better ratings than the, the, the Westminster government does in Scotland, uh, as indeed does the uh, Assembly in Wales. Uh, so there is general more support for what they're doing locally. But it's not, it's not marked, shall we say. There isn't sort of, oh yes, you know, Scotland, the Scottish government's brilliant and the, and the Westminster government's terrible. And in terms of, how, you know, the relative level of who's really responsible for the National Health Service uh, and how that works with devolution, again, most people, you know, really aren't paying uh, quite as much attention as you might imagine, which is, of course, one reason why uh, in Scotland, the, the government has been able to have uh, relatively weaker performance in areas like education, and yet is able to pre present itself as an activist, you know, and, and blame things on, on Westminster. So there isn't detailed understanding of all of this. If there's something very, very marked where, you know, the death rate is two or three times higher uh, in one of the devolved regions, maybe you would get that, but at the moment you're not. Does your research show any sense of... Uh, an increased community cohesion or national uh, cohesion or, or national identity? Do people feel bound closer together? I think people, people tell us that, that, it's, that, that it's helping. Um, and we've got lots of anecdotal information of neighbours setting up WhatsApp groups, checking in on individual neighbours. You've got the 500,000 people, which is more than the government expected, volunteering to, to, to act as um, helpers in the National Health Service. Uh, that all the returning, you know, doctors and nurses who are putting themselves in, in, in some cases, in quite serious danger. So I think there is, I think there is some signs that we are, you know, that we are pulling together, uh, and there will be, you know, there will be a program put down on stockpilers. Sixty-one percent of us say we, we disapprove of stockpilers, although one person stockpiling is somebody else's caution. Of course. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but um, no, I think there is, I think there is some signs. I mean, the question is, how is it sustained? And when we, you know, the, again, my colleagues in Italy, I've got well, my, one of my opposite numbers lives in Bergamo, which is absolutely the epicenter. And although, you know, there are outward signs of them, you know, singing on balconies and all this sort of thing, if you look at um, the sort of modelled change curve of where opinions likely to be, uh, the there's actually things are getting pretty dark. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the sort of overall mood. So it's going, I think it's going to go, um, it's not going to sort of just gradually go upwards. We will, we're in this sort of shock and awe and almost disbelief that we're now locked in our houses. Un unfortunately, the evidence in similar situations is that we will probably feel worse before we feel better and before we just learn to accept it because we are going to be here for some time. The fact that the government's agreed to furlough workers until the 1st of June at huge cost to the Exchequer uh, it's just a sign of perhaps what the government is expecting to happen. And the public are really just getting to grips with spending, you know, literally months in their houses. 
With stockpiling or panic buying or whatever you want to call it, 61% you say uh, look disfavorably upon it. Do many people admit to being stockpilers or panic buyers? Well, we've got about 17% who admit to buying a bit more of a few things. And of course, some, some retail analysts have pointed out that because our system is so finely balanced and just in time without large amounts of stock lying around, that actually it only takes a, a, st- a small number of us to start buying a bit more and suddenly there is nothing left. So, um, you know, I think what's happened is that we've moved uh, billions of pounds of food and goods from sort of from the warehouses into our own houses and our houses in many cases are now have full store cupboards where those of us were able to do it. Uh, of course, the behaviors now, shops are now, things are now sort of normalizing, which interestingly is precisely what happened in China, uh, that people when the shops were bare to start with and then afterwards when people realized that supplies would be coming through regularly they stopped they you know it stopped and i think you can see that sort of starting to happen here you can also see of course massive online use with um netflix having to reduce its bandwidth massive xbox uh, computer games uh, uh, websites crashing with the number of people playing computer games at home uh, etc so we'll we will see all of these changes over over the next um you know few, over the next month or two and do you have any answer as to why toilet roll was the thing that people initially started to stockpile i don't know that there's no, i have no i have no particular um data on it the, the only hypothesis is that people are you know thinking that they're you know that they that's the they <laughs> Want, there's something about cleanliness and thinking that you're, you know, that that could be really awful if you didn't have that. If you didn't have a particular sort of food, you might be able to cope. But uh, that's and it's something to do with disgust and wanting to avoid disgust at yourself or anything else. But I, you know, I it is it is pretty odd. Um, but uh, you know, it'll keep academics busy for a while longer to analyse the the cultural signals around uh, toilet rolls. What are? And I'm not sure if you've asked this. What are yeah. people's biggest fears around this? Is it that they or their loved one die? Is it the financial ramifications or is it not being able to wipe their bum? No, it's certainly, I think it's actually at the moment in Britain at least uh, and uh, pretty much everywhere, it is more about the, finan- the, the financial disruption than it is about, per, you know, I mean, 50% plus of people expect them or their, their, somebody they know close to them to get it. You know, and in my own company, people's parents have already started dying from it. Uh, but the, it is—it is actually at the national level. It is much more the financial than the personal, uh, you know, health concern. We've got about a third of people thinking they're going to catch it, um, but 74% now I'm saying it's going to have a financial impact on them, on you and your family. So that's that's pretty um, that's pretty stark. And of course, they they may well be right, given the you know the sort of in, what, what we're now seeing. We got know, in Britain, uh, you know, fifty three percent say it poses a threat to their job, and that's a lot. That's the same as the recession. And do you know if people just on the public health side of it are people more yeah. worried about catching it themselves, or are they more worried about giving it to someone else? They're more worried about people that are close to them catching it than they are that they are themselves. Interestingly, uh, which seems a bit sort of counterintuitive because you might be just as likely to catch it as people you know. But um, I think there's there's also the, the sort of personal optimism bias. You know, it's a bit like what's everybody else's driving like? Absolutely terrible. What's your driving like? Oh, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm going to. Oh, it's a bit. You know, like everybody. Oh yes, you know, etc. 
um, what are everybody else's children like terribly badly behaved? What are yours like? Oh, they're fine. You know? <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> um, and I think there's a little, there's a little bit of that, that, you know, yes, it will, terrible things will happen, but somehow, you know, we'll, we're, I personally will be okay. What about attitudes towards, um, other countries and, um, not just the way they've handled it, but perhaps perceived blame, uh, Donald Trump obviously has got into a lot of trouble for continually, or certainly was continually calling it um, Chinese or, or the China virus instead of coronavirus. Are there changing attitudes in the UK and around the world towards China, Italy, and other places that are perceived to be hotspots? I don't, I mean, I think people are wary of them. We found at one point that 17% of the public said they'd avoid somebody who had an Asiatic appearance. Uh, or looked vaguely Chinese, so that was uh, you know quite a lot of quite a lot of people, and, and probably of course that's the proportion who will tell us that they're going to do that. The actual proportion might be somewhat higher, of course, uh, because people don't want to appear to be racist. But in terms of attitudes to individual countries, I I'm I'm more sceptical. I mean, people don't always. A lot of people don't have you know very well founded or in depth views of say China anyway. To be quite honest. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that, and given that this is now a global phenomenon, uh, you know, are we going to really go to town on the Chinese for their levels of hygiene in the, in the wild foods department in the market in, in Wuhan? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure, to be honest. It takes, you know, it's, it's, it takes some, quite something to shift things. Uh, you know, obviously attitudes to America have declined markedly globally because of some of the things President Trump has said and done. Uh, you know, particularly sort of banning Muslims or trying to ban Muslims, etc. But in terms of this, I think, and also the Chinese, of course, are now portraying themselves as people who knew what to do about it, got it under control, etc. So, no, I don't, I, at the moment, I don't see that. I mean, I think if you got to a situation where, for example, the French decided to shut on Calais, given that 36% of all British food is coming through the Dover-Calais route, uh, that could be a bit of a bummer shall we say, and might lead us to be a bit cross with the French. But it would have to be something quite dramatic like that, I think. That's reassuring to know that people aren't following, perhaps. I mean, we haven't really seen it here from mainstream politicians, any of that dog whistle stuff. Um, so it's reassuring yeah. that no, it doesn't I, translate. No. So, no, let's, let's, let's wait and see. And, and of course, you know, the macro picture on immigration, which used to be the thing that obsessed us in Britain, is that British, the British have become relatively more positive about immigration over the last nine years and you know even long before any any of the latest things happen concern of spontaneous concern about immigration have been falling too and in fact it started falling even before the referendum result this uh, crisis has been uh, a, a huge distraction from everything but it means we're not talking about brexit at all uh, thank god I, I, know, I was wondering what you know i was so i mean that is the one good thing about it you know and, and it does sort of put brexit in context doesn't it it seems a bit less you know it seems rather the niceties of our trading relationships with europe or something all of this stuff seems a bit does seem a bit um I don't know, twee compared to some of the sort of life and death issues we now face. But th there may be profound political implications for that, that um, I suppose the, the election for a lot of people effectively meant that Brexit was definitely going to happen anyway and that that in itself had moved the debate on. But in terms yeah. of perhaps a, a constant running sore, certainly in the, perhaps for the next few years, in the short to medium term, Brexit compared to this may continue to feel 
very small and economically compared to what the chancellor has announced and, and the way that's going to have to be paid for in the coming years, yeah. almost irrelevant to people. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I think we're, you know, it's going to give us a new perspective, but how we um, deal with this massive set of debt, whether it's going to be personal or, or collective is, is going to be um, pretty dramatic. I think in also for the, for the unilateralists among the Brexit voters, uh, it's a reminder that to deal with some of, some of the problems and challenges the world faces, you do need some multilateral interventions. I was interested to see that the UK government um, was asked why it wasn't getting involved in the European um, uh, initiatives to try and sort of procure medical supplies and ventilators, etc., across Europe. And they said, well, we're not. The initial answer was, I think, that we weren't part of Europe anymore, so of course we wouldn't join in. But later on, this was clarified, as I understand it, to say that it was a sort of oversight or something, because we'd obviously withdrawn from most things European. And I think that that's, that's, that, that is a, one of the big questions. What sort of size and government and how interventionist a government will we actually expect and demand in future? Uh, will multilateralism suddenly get a bit of a shot in the arm uh, as a result of this? Or will, you know, will people like Trump say, no, we've just got to now vet a, you know, compulsory quarantine for anybody visiting America ever again, you know, who knows? Uh, will we take, will, will our attitudes on climate change if, we, if this goes on for a long time and we notice that um, you know, fewer people are dying from various forms of air pollution, et cetera, or, or other impacts, will we say, actually, we don't want to go back to, to exactly how we were before? You know, we work will go bankrupt um, because we can't sit in crowded community offices anymore. Maybe big businesses like mine, I'm a moderate business in Britain, 240 million before the crash. Uh, you know, do I need to rent lots of expensive central London office space if, I, if it turns out I can actually run the business from everybody's spare room? You know, these are these are all sort of these are big implications for the business, for society, for politics um, in in the future. I think that you know, and again, it will depend on the the length uh, of this uh, crisis. And and you know, but I don't think things just spring back overnight at the moment. It doesn't feel like it. But I may well there- be wrong. I, I I often am. Is, is there any public preference that you detect for how we deal with the post-crisis finances? Would people rather the government borrow? Would people rather tax increases or, or public spending cuts? Yeah, I don't. We, we haven't got into the detail of that. I mean, certainly before the uh, the crisis, of course, um, support for uh, you know tax rises or cuts to pay for. A, to reduce the national debt were about were really had become really unpopular whereas in 2010 they had majority support and that had been dropping away over the last decade and of course of course for the majority of people saying that taxes that public spending should go up even if taxes have to rise well then now it certainly has gone up um so whether they're going to be eagerly anticipating the tax rises to accompany it is another matter but um that was already clearly in train and i don't think People expect the government to be there um, uh, at, at times like this, and they are they are willing to see a very interventionist government. You know, whether they like, they won't necessarily like the tax rises that have to go with it. But certainly, paying more tax to make sure that the NHS is equipped to deal with this sort of thing in future, I think that would be something you could almost certainly get through. Even before even before the crisis, we had around two thirds of the public saying that they would personally. Uh, and what they say and what they do aren't always the same, but at least they were telling us they would personally pay more taxes for the National Health Service. And how does that break down amongst Conservative voters? 
even among conservative voters, obviously it was higher among Labour voters, but it was even a majority of conservative voters were saying the same thing. Uh, so, and it's, you know, the NHS is something, although we talk about how polarised and divided Britain is, the NHS is still something that ultimately unites people. Um, in terms of behaviour after the uh, crisis, however long it lasts, are people, do you think, less likely to travel abroad in the next year or two, less likely to visit certain countries? Um, what other behaviours do you think? I mean, you mentioned not necessarily having to rent expensive London offices. What about individual behaviours and the, the sort of things we might I think it's. Something? I think it's really interesting. I mean, my personal thing, you know, I love, I, I love Italy and I try and go there for either work or pleasure sort of, you know, several times a year. And I'm not sure that... Um, assuming they've got the disease under control, and particularly once, once the vaccine's out and countries start vaccinating people, provided we're past the... I don't know if you've looked, Matt, at the trajectory of Spanish flu in 1918, where there was an initial peak and yes. then it died down a bit. And then, of course, the second peak was absolutely ginormous. And so, again, much will depend on what happens later this year. But assuming, assuming it gets its under control, assuming there's a vaccine in the spring, I would say next summer is going to be bonanza time for people going on holiday they're going to be people are going to be crazy for it i think a lot of this year a lot of people are going to miss it and i'm always reminded of sort of reading books about you know just about cooking written in britain in the late 1940s and early 1950s you know as you know we had rationing i think until 1954 uh, on some things in britain and so there was this massive pent-up desire to go and you know see europe again eat interesting foreign food etc etc and although, you know, in theory, we have all of that stuff available at, a, at the press of a button now with home delivery, et cetera, and, and amazing things that you could never get in shops in Britain 40 years ago, I still think you, because people are so used to traveling, and indeed the British are among the countries that flies the most often and is the most international uh, of countries, we will see lots of Britons desperate to get away once they're allowed to again. Well, that is, a, that is a hopeful and positive note to end on, that people will still want to see the world and uh, probably, I mean, maybe record numbers might not be the right way to think about it, but you think things like that will sort of snap back into life as soon as they possibly can? I, I would imagine so. I mean, I think some people, I mean, some people will be skinned, uh, so that that might be a factor. And airlines are going to have to recover. It's, it's possible that some will go bust, you know, maybe prices will go up as a result um, because there's overcapacity in the sector. But no, I think the desire to, we've been so programmed to being used to just being able to fly off to Europe for the weekend for a lot, you know, for millions of people in Britain. The idea that you don't do that anymore, I think it's, you know, unless it's going to take something pretty dramatic to change that. And even with the rate, you know, the other thing to say, if, you know, every year there's a Swiss academic or do doctor who's writing this at the moment, you know, uh, probably of a sort of rather Germanic um, sort of air, but he's pointing out that the normal number of people who die from respiratory disease is a couple of million a year. And, you know, so far this hasn't killed, you know, isn't, this isn't going to kill anywhere near that number. Well, that's a that's a, a form of a positive. Uh, one thing I uh, <laughs> almost yeah. forgot to ask, and I find it's always a good yeah. question to ask pollsters. Yeah. Has there, have there been any surprises in the polling that you've seen? Well, so far, I mean, I think the, the, the rise in support for the government is, um, you know, sort of what we would have expected, but it's always interesting to see it, given that the government's rating, you know, the government's ratings were some of the lowest we've ever measured just a few months ago, and they've suddenly shot up to among the best ratings 
you know, that we've seen for a long time. This is now like, you know, we're now like early, we're now like early, um, early, early Blair. So no, I, and that wasn't, that wasn't sort of, it was expected, but it was, it was sort of, oh, there it is. <laughs> um, but otherwise, no, I don't think there's been anything so far that's sort of, Weird. That's weird. I mean, I, I think the proportion of people who think it's fake news is interesting. I was just going to remind myself of what is it? Hang on. What's the fake news figure? It was quite. Um, so we've got. Um, we've still got in Britain uh, just before the weekend, before lockdown, thirty-seven percent who said that uh, the media are exaggerating it. In Italy, where they, they're still, you know, they're carrying the dead out in in lorries, it's twenty-three percent who think the media are exaggerating. So. I think, I mean, that's still quite high. Uh, 37 um, I mean, I maybe they're, really maybe they're statisticians and they're saying, well, it's only a few thousand people are going to die. You know, 1,000, the normal number of deaths in Britain is 1,400 a day. So, you know, okay, it's, a, it's 200 now a day with the coronavirus, but it's still, it's not a game changer. But I think, <laughs> I'm not sure, I think it's just sort of general scepticism. And do you think, I suppose this is so hard for you to know, but yeah. had this crisis hit in a different time, would yeah. that 37% figure be similar? I guess what I'm getting at is, has social media played any part in that? Potentially. I mean, what we've actually found, of course, in Britain is there's, um, you know, falling trust in the internet and social media and rising trust in uh, things like in the print media and things like the BBC. So... Uh, you know, there's a whole report on our website, Matt, if you haven't seen it, called Trust, uh, the Truth. Oh, the tru uh, because we looked at this, this meme that, you know, trust is in terminal decline in all situations, in all contexts, etc., etc., when actually trust in other people in Britain was rising, has risen between, you know, 2015 and 2019, um, even, after the, even after the Brexit vote. So there's a lot of, there's, a, there's an easy meme that journalists, you know, and you get, you get Labour talking about having to win back people's trust. I mean, they never had it in the first place. <laughs> you know, um, so, no, so I think, so I don't, I don't, I think there's just, there is a natural, there is a natural scepticism. I think I would tie it in, and there is a, a, a long-term decline in trust, um, in a, you know, but in, but in North America, for example, in, in, in the USA, trust in government hasn't changed, didn't change between 2011 and 2019, but it had fallen markedly in the period, um, you know, during the late 20th century and after 9-11, but it hadn't actually got worse recently. So there's a chronic problem of trust. There isn't a particularly new or acute one. And I, I think those figures, to be honest, would always be there. And you remember the Gallup poll about trust in politicians, don't you? That even in August 1944, with a coalition government fighting the Nazis in northern France, Gallup found that only 35% of the British public, even then, believed that politicians were acting in the national interest, <laughs> not their own or their party's interest. So, you know, there's always a, a fair amount of skepticism, but it is interesting to see in the face of clear and present uh, danger. And certainly, you know, I'm hearing about members of staff who are severely ill or where their parents are dying, literally. And the fact that, you know, 37% of the public think it's all overrated um, uh, is a bit crazy. It is indeed. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on. This has just been fascinating. It would be brilliant, hopefully, to talk to you again in a few no, weeks no, or no, months' always time. Ha always happy to. Any, any time, just send me an email. Yeah, happy to do that. Thanks so much. And stay safe. I hope you and your loved ones are well. Thanks, and Matt. wash your hands yeah. and stay in the house. All right, mate. Cheers, Take Ben. Care. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Bye.
Well, there you go, Ben Page, someone I'm sure I will talk to on the podcast again in the future. And similar to when you're talking to people like Deborah Mattinson, the amount of insight they can give you about the public mood. And occasionally, you know, you can maybe guess some of this stuff. And obviously voting patterns give you a certain amount um, of insight into where the public mind might be at any one point. But it's still hard to decipher. So talking to people that are constantly mapping these things is always just such a stimulating experience um so i can't thank him enough for coming on i've also posted a link uh, in the episode notes that piece of research he suggests um that they did called trust the truth which you can click on um and for all their latest work go to ipsos.com and it's not just about political stuff or um, uh, this crisis specifically. They cover a whole range of uh, public insights, which is just always brilliant to look at uh, and to read. So thank you, as always, for downloading this. Um, I've rearranged some tour dates, as you may be aware, for later in the year. You can um, get the whole list of those through my website, mapfordcom slash live. And just keep telling people about the podcast, please. And if you're sat at home looking for something to do, then maybe go on iTunes and leave a review of the podcast because then that would be a small way you could say thanks um, for, uh, well, for me making it. Um, So, I mean, hopefully, one of the great bits of potential of this period actually of being uh, forced to do this from home is that hopefully that means I can actually interview perhaps a more varied field because I can interview other people from the comfort of their home. So I may be able to get people from uh, beyond these shores on the show. So let's see. I've got some amazing guests lined up. Because of the period we're living in, I don't want to trail them in advance just in case they don't happen. But just to cover... And by the way, keep emailing me, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com because um, the interview with Ben happened as a result of that. Um, Someone got in touch and suggested him. So um, it it can have a real impact um, in the context of this show. Um, but also because I, I just wanted to check uh, with you all about whether I don't want to make these all about coronavirus. I want to cover some other things as well, and that's why it was great to have Emily Thornbury on on the last episode to talk about stuff other than this. But obviously, this is a period of time where people are fascinated in all the different parts of it. So, as well as talking to um, politicians about how it's going and former advisors in Downing Street about the communication side I think it is interesting to talk to people like Ben about how the public are feeling and cover various different aspects so some of the guests I'm lining up are related to this issue and um, some of them aren't some of them are about politics outside of this and the other politics that perhaps slowly and quietly in the background of course continues to carry on so um, there you go really email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com and um for any guest suggestions or, or any feedback, and I will see you soon. Take care. Ta-ra. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.